Hello, and welcome to River Talk, where we sit down with some of the Rivertown area's most interesting and notable people. My guest today is the village manager of Briarcliff Manor. He's been a mayor, he's worked in the financial sector, he's been a naval officer, and he's my guest today, Mr. Philip Zagarelli. Mr. Zagarelli, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. Welcome to Briarcliff. Yes. Or we say beautiful, bucolic Briarcliff. Sometimes I take the bucolic off, but it is a beautiful place. It is a very nice place, and we are right here. We're in uh, the Village Hall, right here in the downtown area. And you are someone who's had a very long and varied career, and uh, certainly somebody who has some stories to tell. So let's take it back to 1970. You're a, uh, a graduate of Columbia University, and you joined the Navy. Yeah, I was. <clears throat> I went to Columbia College. I graduated in, you know, those days you graduated in June, the first week of June. I was not the last. I was the next to the last person to graduate through the uh, NROTC system at Columbia. So from graduation, I, I was commissioned an officer in early July and uh, went right out into uh, the Navy. And, you know, the, during the time, it was also still Vietnam. Vietnam was still going pretty strong. Didn't know where I was going to end up. And I received my orders and I looked at it and it was one of these single word captions, traditional that you see in the Navy. And it was ComNav Sup for Antarctica. And all I focused on was, never mind what the front part said, the last part said Antarctica. And I said, holy smokes, I'm going to where? You know, I was fully prepared to go wherever they were going to send me. And all of a sudden, I see that, and I said, I better, you know, like, look at a globe. It was a very interesting selection that came my way, but it was also a very life-changing series of events that affected me all the way to today as to what I'm doing, so... What was it like serving in Antarctica? Yeah, the joke would be, of course, it was very cold, but great place. It's, theoretically, it's really a, a desert, very little rainfall or, you know, in the form of uh, snow. What you see is really precipitation frozen that is just blown all over the place. Uh, you know, they only get like two, three inches a year. But yet, you know, at the South Pole, it's an elevation of uh, two miles above sea level, basically. So that's a lot of ice in between. Phenomenal. I immediately got involved in... It, it, the Navy does, at that time, used to do support for the National Science Foundation. So you're almost embedded, because you're helping them, get around Antarctica. So you, you learn a lot about science. And you know, I had taken botany and geology in college. And I sort of was oriented to that anyway. But I, I really fell into it, really enjoyed it. One of the, my collateral duties, since I was one of the most junior uh, officers, uh, well, I was. I was what's called the boot ensign in the whole command, the youngest and the lowest ranking officer. So you sort of get uh, hustled. <laughs> you know? I was in charge of all the dignitaries that came down. Big congressional types, you know, chairman of different committees would come down and so I used to have to, you know, uh, escort them, take them around and arrange things. So a little different than a traditional Navy job, you would think, but got to know a lot of people and to see really how the operation is. The science was phenomenal down there. I, there was a real key thing, and that was I was with, I, I can't remember his name, a professor from, the, uh, from Ohio, uh, University of Ohio, and they found some linkage 
of a fossil of an amphibian that was found both in, in Africa, Antarctica, and South America. And, and there was this whole theory of continental drift, Gondwana land. And it could have only been at one time together because this was, this was an amphibian, not really an ocean-going uh, reptile. So it was like a, one of those pieces that falls into place that says, ta-da, there is continental drift, or there were the plate tectonics. And, you know, that's sort of cool. Yeah, wow, it sounds fascinating. And, of course, your work with visiting dignitaries led to another assignment. Yeah, and, you know, who knows how it really happened. It was time for rotation, and I could have been rift, meaning I could have just left, but I I really did enjoy the Navy. And the suggestion comes through, you know, through teletype saying, would it be okay if you would be assigned to New York City? And I said, "Uh, yeah born and raised, <laughs> you know. Well, we have this spot, and we'd like to know if you like it. And so I said, okay, what is it? So, And it was being the flag lieutenant and aide to uh, a three-star admiral who was the most senior three-star admiral in the Navy, so only above you were four stars. And you were assigned to the U.S. mission to the U.N., and you would be reporting to uh, both for Commander Eastern Sea Frontier, but also the U.S. mission, which was headed by then George Bush, future Bush 41. So, uh, fine, you know, and, and that totally changed me, too, uh, in, in doing a lot of things. Phenomenal guy, phenomenal guy, and his, and, and his wife, and uh, the admiral I work for, our vice admiral, uh, Harry Hardy, and his wife, they were from Sykeston, Missouri, and, as they would say, and Little Rock, Arkansas, and they wanted to see New York, and I was their aide. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things. It, it was very, very good. I never, I admit, I was never in combat, but I learned a lot, and uh, especially uh, with Admiral Hardy and the ambassador, but especially Admiral Hardy, the makings and how really the military at that time was organized and responsible was much different than what I see today. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about what you learned from the people you work with, from the Admiral and, and from uh, Mr. Bush. Well, you know, let me start with Ambassador Bush, President Bush. Uh, I believe the Israelis shot down a 707 that belonged to Libyan Airlines. And seems to me it was like a very quiet day, hardly anybody around. And this thing comes through. The security officer says the ambassador wants a briefing on on the type of plane and so on and so forth. I said, okay. <laughs> the admiral wasn't there. I'm just a little lieutenant, you know. So he says, here, take this book. And it was Jane's aircraft. And it was sort of like the Webster's of all airplanes, especially military. So I go up in the elevator up, and I'm saying, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Let me look up 707, you know. In hindsight, the guy... He was a fighter pilot in World War II, shot and in the ocean, you know. He knows. So I'm called upon to go up there, and I'm saying, oh, my God. So I open it up. Somebody was watching me because the representative picture of the 707, I believe it was a 707, it was a Libyan Airlines passenger plane. And if you looked at the summary of the description, it said that they only had two. So I said to the ambassador, I said, you know, 
there's a 50-50 chance that this is the actual plane that was shot down. And so what I mean by that is a lot of times things is pure luck, and he never forgot it. It's that type of stuff. And he and his wife were always very nice, never an issue. You must have kind of rubbed shoulders with some, some pretty important people and or, or attended some pretty interesting events during your time. Yeah, it, it, we did. And, uh, I mean, one time we went down for a change of command in in uh, Norfolk, and uh, it was on the Kennedy, an aircraft carrier. Got out of the car with the admiral, and we were in our dress whites, and we were going on board, you know, and I went and slammed the door on my thumb. This one, in fact. And I'm, like, seeing stars, and I had white gloves on, and it's turning red, so I folded it down like that. And we went up, and the gun salute, and, all you know, all the, the band and everything. So we go in, and I meet Admiral Cousins. So we said, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. And, so and I said, uh, you have a second? I said, I need a little help. You know, by then, the inside of my white glove was all red. And so, you know, got went off and, and got taken care of. The reason why you remember those things is that everyone was very nice, and it was very formal, but you know what? You know, they saw I had literally <laughs> chopped my finger and, um, you know, took care of it. And, and that's the way it always was. I mean, a lot of times everybody thinks it's all very stuffy and so on, but there was a, a camaraderie and understanding, uh, you know, especially even for a junior officer who, by the way, did not go through the Naval Academy, but went through NROTC, difference in philosophy orientation. So it was sure. So uh, pretty soon after leaving the Navy, you started your career in local government. Uh, you yeah, a... right afterwards, I came out and uh, I ran for office since I lost. I didn't lose ever thereafter, but the first time I lost, it was for a trustee and then North Terrigan, which is today Sleepy Hollow. I lost by 17 votes out of about 3,000, but there was a vacancy, so since I was top of the losers. They put me in as a trustee. I was a trustee for five years. I ran for mayor in 79. I was mayor for eight years. During that time, I became, I think, I, I don't know, probably one of the younger presidents of the New York State Conference of Mayors in 83. I left in 87. I was on the school board for three years at Mechanical Hills for three years, and I will tell you that is one thing I will never do again. I will never go on the school board. Uh, but then my career, you know, in, in finance really took off. So during that period, I I really balanced out you know, from the military to the government to finance, you know, it sort of complemented what I like to believe is a, a better understanding of how things work and how they can be mutually exclusive. But if you pull the good parts, understanding the bad parts of each and put it together, you might be able to have a career that is heavily public oriented, but also have firm underpinnings of in banking and in finance that go hand-in-hand hand with doing good work in government. I mean, as a village manager, as opposed to being a mayor, you're more involved with the with the hands-on sort of nuts and bolts of local government, especially financially. So certainly a lot of what you learned working in the private sector carried over. Yes, and you know what? Bradcliffe's very unique, incorporated in 1902, and is really a beneficiary of the 
post-Tammany Hall era, the good government progressive type. There's no political parties here. William Walter Law was the spark that created Briarcliff, and they, a strong manager form of government was established, wherein the, the village manager is actually the, the chief executive officer of the village. Now, having come from a strong mayor's form of government, where, I mean, you were torched one way or the other, you could be Republican or Democrat, and you had a good idea, it didn't matter to the other side. And coming from that, you know, most people think of a strong mayor form of government, that the mayor absolutely runs everything, uh, is really not just, it's not the case, certainly not in Briarcliff, because the relationship with the mayor and the board is very well established, and basically the board sets both financial and policy procedures, and the village manager is to execute it on their behalf, and we certainly do that. But there are a lot of areas on the day-to-day running that I never either had the authority or had the inclination to do when I was mayor in Sleepy Hollow than to do it here. So many times I actually had, I felt more responsibility, obligation to do things than even did one in, in Sleepy Hollow. And it was due to also a very good understanding with the mayor and the board is yeah, basically, there's somewhat a serendipitous situation here, but four questions to every issue, and is what's the problem or what's the question? All right, what are the solutions, meaning just don't give me your answer, but give me the up and down. All right, how much is this going to cost, of course? And the last one is is the little, the little specialty of Briarcliff Manor, which makes this so unique. By and large, the elected officials, especially the mayor, would say, why haven't you done it yet? To someone like myself, having been a mayor, then coming here and being the manager, and very few people have done that, and I don't mean that as an act of boastfulness, maybe it's more of bravery, <laughs> is that that's phenomenal. Go in and do it, you know, type of thing. And so I, I like to believe that's, that's a dividend, maybe, of having a, the wide-ranging opportunities I had in different sectors to put together a way of doing things that I like to believe works may not work all the time but i think it's been well you brought up something very interesting and that's the lack of partisan politics in prior cliff um you see it you know we're living in a time of huge political division and and that has kind of seeped in on the local level and you see it a lot and and it seems to me as as a journalist who who covers local politics that the more you get into partisan bickering, the less gets done. And it seems like that's something that Briarcliff has managed to avoid. Yeah, I mean, there could be disagreements on policy, but it's not partisan here. It's the People's Caucus, and it was founded, you know, basically the time of the founding of the village. And the orientation was... The first Wednesday of January of each year is uh, is a caucus, and basically anybody can be nominated. The Wednesday after that is a debate. It's not really a debate per se. It's a discussion you're called upon, you know, very collegial. Along the way, if it gets that far, because sometimes there's only one slate, is a pledge that you would adhere to the will of the people when the primary occurs, that you wouldn't challenge the determination of the People's Caucus residents. And, you know, I always got a kick out of this because when you, every year that I've been here, the Board of Elections would call and say, can you explain 
what goes on up there election-wise because, you know, it's like so unique, you know. And the following Wednesday was a primary. And so basically the unwritten or written rule was whoever won the primary, the, the People's Caucus, went on to the general election in March but unopposed, meaning you had your chance in the People's Caucus. The People's Caucus determined who should be the candidates. It's very unique, and people don't understand it. But when I try to explain it in more of a layman's term, people say, gee, I wish I had that in my community. You know, you can say it's an oasis. You can say it's a fortress in that we, it's despite everything around it, it survived. I really hope it does. To see this and operate for over 100 years, really really now coming on to 120 years next year, uh, that's, that's, that's something to see. Sure. So you, uh, you said you were originally from North Tarrytown, now Sleepy Hollow. Mm. You definitely have a, a strong connection with the area. You've been involved in a lot of historical organizations. Tell me about your connection uh, with this area. There's something a lot of people don't realize with me, my family, and Briarcliff. My wife's father, my father-in-law, was born and raised in Briarcliff, 1905. His mother was a chambermaid up at the lodge. His father worked for the water company, Briarcliff Water Company. And the father died when my father-in-law, Bill, Uh, was very young, and his wife married the husband's best friend, who was a constable in the town of Boston. So, I mean, it's like, you can't make this stuff up, you know? Uh, The other crazy thing, and we we met when I was in the Navy, she was the maid of honor to her sister who married a naval officer, and the naval officer asked me to be in the wedding party, and that's how we met. And we, I literally said to her that we were going to be next. It was like love at first sight. So, from that, all that and the fact that my father was dean of the dental school at Columbia and Bill was a dentist who took courses <laughs> from my father. I mean, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. And my father, when he used to come up and visit us when we lived in uh, then North Terra, always came up from the Bronx by way of Briarcliff because he would drive around through Briarcliff because he loved it up here so much. And we always joked because... He had passed away uh, before I came here, you know, as the manager, that he would be so proud because he loved Briarcliff. So you have been in public service for uh, almost 50 years at this point. Um, What what was it about uh, being in in public office that, that kind of drew you to it? You know, I asked myself that because, first of all, my wife, uh, Barbara, met me while I was a trustee. I was elected mayor the first time in 79, literally a couple months before our firstborn. So the, the joke about it was three of the four times I was up for re-election, Barbara was pregnant just before and had birth right after the election. So I'm not saying there's a connection. I like public service. I like being able to go in with the faith and confidence in people and the support of a staff to do good things or to correct what's not good or right and make it good. I just was oriented to that, always doing that. And one thing led to another. Could I have gone to higher office? You know, maybe. But, you know, 
the toughest battles you're going to do and probably the most indelible problems to resolve, resolve the unresolvable, is at the lowest you know, ground roots level because you're dealing with people at a much closer plane, literally like you to me right now, eyeball to eyeball. You know, you're not in from the county to the state to the federal government. You're dealing in much bigger issues, and the the people behind the issues get cloudy. Here, I always viewed it as a plus because even a small step that you can do to correct something will probably have a bigger tangible end result, not only in the situation, but to the very person that you're interfacing with on trying to resolve a, a problem. You know, people call it constituent service. It's beyond that. It's just, you know, trying to do the right thing. And it's not that it's a holier-than-thou thing. It's just that you see something, you know, say something. If you see something, do something. And I think we're getting away from it. I think that people view issues and problems together. It's, it's different issue to a problem. I think they've gotten commingled now, which makes it very hard to deal on a rational, reasonable basis with people. I think people are a bit frazzled in this last two years with the COVID and a lot of other things, and you can see it in the fabric. It's it's palpable. You're going to be retiring soon. Yes. <laughs> so as someone who has had a very busy life uh, what does retirement look like for you? Oh, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's been indelibly etched in my mind, and that is you have to plan your life. You have to plan especially your retirement. The lesson I learned was my father. My father was, uh, as I said, dean of the dental school at Columbia. He taught, he fundraised, and all that kind of stuff. And he used to drive every day down, you know, to 168th Street, you know, and when he had mandatory retirement, literally months afterwards, a couple months, three months, I don't know, he had a massive heart attack. And it ended up that he had triple bypass, which was pretty new back then. And he lived very well afterwards. But he went cold turkey from being constantly, you know, so. And now he lay, he ended up living till 89. And he got involved in the rotary. I was mayor at the time. And the guy said, Dad, you got to do something. So he joins the rotary and inside of a year, you know, he's president of the rotary. And he starts doing these projects. And he comes to me and he tells me, I don't know if I want to share with everybody. My, I will. My nickname in the family is Pip. And my nieces and nephews, my brothers still call me Pip. I'm 73 and a half years old. I'm still called Pip. And so he would call me up and he says, Pip, this is what we're going to do. The Rotaries has this project, and we need the village to do this and this and this up at the hospital. Okay, Dad? Okay. Yeah. So from going cold turkey, he got into things. So I have to figure out there's somewhere in between. And so there's a few things. I've talked to the mayor here, and i talked to the other two villages, especially the Tri-Village Water, which I'd like to continue doing what I'm doing already. I know it sounds crazy from the ridiculousness of sublime, but I, I raise bees. I have an API. I, you know, I, I have honey, you know, that kind of stuff. And I find that very, as crazy as that may sound to people, I find that actually very soothing. I'm active on the cemetery board. Sleepy Hollow Cemetery is such an asset from a historic point of view. A lot of people don't realize. Um, I need to spend time with my wife, Barbara. <laughs> 
you know, just plenty of work to do around the house. And there's, as I said, there's other things. That keep me, I'll keep myself busy, but I, I want to do it in, in a orderly fashion, not just go cold turkey at one end or go hell bent at the other and and you know blow it. So that's fair, correct? <laughs> Absolutely. Make me feel good. Is Absolutely. That no, that okay. makes a lot of sense. Well, Mr. Zicarelli, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been a great chatting with you. I, my pleasure. I, I probably told you stories I shouldn't, but uh, <laughs> they are true. And if someone else asked me, what are you going to do? The other thing, too, is I know, and my kids and my wife laugh at this the whole time. They laugh all the time. Is I actually have 16 pages of outline for a book. Actually, two, because one is more governmental funny stories you know that it's not to be about me but rather indelible issues stories that have left a mark and so one book is going to be called outrunning the avalanche you know that famous picture sequence in wide world of sports you know with the guys coming down downhill and the avalanche is chasing it somehow i felt that way in my life and the other one in particular from antarctica and other things is many are cold but few are frozen. <laughs> I think that sort of wraps up it, you know? I like it. I like, I like it. it. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. River Talk is a production of Rivertown's Media, publishers of the River Journal and River Journal North. For more information, check out riverjournalonline.com slash rivertalk. Do you know someone from the area who would make a great guest on our show? Let us know at rivertalk at rivertownsmedia.com. River Talk is executive produced by Alan Begun and Bruce Apar of Rivertown's Media. I'm Christian Larson, and I'll see you next time.